0: Hey, this is John, and you're listening to the Mosaic Young Adult Podcast. To learn more about Mosaic Young Adults, visit us online at thisismosaic.org forward slash youngadults. We hope this podcast is simply part of a greater conversation you have with Jesus. Enjoy the message.
1: We're going to be reading John 17, 1 through 19. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have g- have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I concent- concentrate, consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Well, I'm excited to... Be back here in John. It always is a gift to come back to what I would probably argue is my favorite book of the Bible. Um, but we'll actually be finishing John in just the next month or so, and so which will be about a two-year journey that we've been going through the book of John because it's just it's just that long and that rich. But uh, as I was preparing for this message, it uh, made me remember uh, the first week. Uh, the, I started my counseling program. Uh, I got a master's in counseling a couple of years ago, and one of my professors, Dr. Copeland, put this C.S. Lewis quote from a book called uh, from his book called *Weight of Glory*, um, and it's going to be on the screen right behind me. So I'm going to read it for us. Um, And before we read it, the reason why Dr. Copeland was so emphatic about us reading this as we began the class was because he wanted us to see that with embedded in humanity, embedded in human is a dignity, a worthiness, a glory. And so this is what C.S. Lewis astutely put together for us. It says this, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, but it is immortals we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. So what C.S. Lewis in his literary genius is trying to, you are like, okay, Cesar, I didn't, I wasn't an English major. I didn't really like reading books. I didn't really like half of what you just read. But the truth of it is, is that there, this, this quote actually shifted the way I started to see people uh, because In reality, there are no such things as mere ordinary people. What C.S. Lewis was getting here is that humans as God's creation are not just mere creatures, that we as humans, whether you believe in God or not, you have been given a degree of glory that no other creation is given. In fact, as you read towards the end of the New Testament, we find that humans will have a new glorified body in heaven and it will be so glorious as C.S. Lewis puts it that if we were to see the version of ourselves that is going to be in heaven, we would be so tempted to worship it because we would think we're in the presence of a God or a goddess. Now, this is a promise that is given to those who are disciples of Jesus. But but even though that's a future promise, there is still a current promise in that there is a distinct glory that all humans have in this moment, each of one of you in this room. You have glory written in your bones. And when you think about the Genesis narrative, you think about Genesis one and two, when God created the cosmos, he would call each category of creation and he would finish the day and say, it was good. But when it comes to the creation of humans, God calls them very good because there is something unique in the creation of humans and it's what C.S. Lewis was alluding to. There is a glory that is gifted to humanity upon creation and it's a gift that we ironically either diminish or chase after. So this glory that is etched on our souls comes from more than just being human. That isn't just why. Why is that humans are very good, but the rest aren't. When God called humanity very good, what was so very good about it? Well, Jesus helps answer this question in the gospel of Mark. And uh, it's gonna be here behind me in Mark chapter 12, verses 16 and 17. Here it is. Sorry, 15 and 16. Before I read it, there's a moment in which the Pharisees are trying, are having a gotcha moment with Jesus. They've kind of set up this hot topic conversation about whether or not Israel should pay taxes to Caesar. If Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes, it means he's a friend to Rome, which means he's an enemy of the Jews. But if he says no, then he's an enemy to Rome and he's a friend to the Jews. It's a kind of lose-lose kind of deal. But Jesus doesn't answer the question directly, but instead Jesus asks them to bring him a Roman coin. And this is what he says, but knowing the hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. So Jesus said to him, said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to give to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So he doesn't answer this question directly, but instead he says, listen, give me a Roman coin. And he points to, it and he goes, listen, what's on the face of this coin? It's the face of Caesar. So Jesus says, not whether you should or shouldn't pay tax. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. But what he's really saying is that the, whatever image is born on the coin, that's where the coin belongs to. So whatever bears the image of Caesar, naturally give it to Caesar. But whatever bears the image of God, give it to God. And so there's this, this gives insight as to what makes humanity so very good in the eyes of God. It's that humanity bears the image of God. You sit here right now bearing the image of God. And this is what sets us apart from all other creation. This is our glory. That from the beginning of mankind, we were given glory by God because he etched his image and printed it on our souls. Think for a moment of the most beautiful place on the planet. Just think about it. Looking at you is more glorious than that. Florida has one redeeming quality and it's at sunsets. And you are more glorious than that to God because you bear the image of God on your soul. But the question then is, isn't whether we have glory or not have glory, is what do we do with this glory? Because notice what Jesus says to the Pharisees, right? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God's what is God's. So if we are made in his image and we belong to God, who does our glory belong to? God. But here lies the problem. We don't want to give God the glory. We want the glory for ourselves. Because we're brought into a world that enjoys about 99% of what I just said to you. Oh, we're glorious, tell me more behind every yes girl and slay queen and saturday air for the boys listen there is a feeding frenzy on this idea of receiving glory because as humans we hunger for glory and we, in fact we've actually built a society that is founded on the God of self. Let's make much of ourselves. Let's flaunt ourselves. Let's sell ourselves. Make sure everyone can see what we're doing at all times so that they can want to be like us. We're hoping at the end of it all that we can be seen as special and desirable. We want to be known and seen as important. And as you hear the C.S. Lewis quote, you're like, I can get on board with this. Gods and goddesses? Well, I mean, if you say so, you might think this is rather extreme and comical. You're like, I don't really go searching for glory, but it applies to us all because you see this hunger for glory is part of our everyday interactions. Because I mean, what is the pursuit of glory? It's just the desire to be seen, to have praise and recognition. And it shows up in the smallest of ways. Just the other day I was getting dressed And my wife, Rachel was getting dressed in another place and I came over to her and somehow as she's getting ready for her workday, I find a roundabout way of talking about my outfit. And after about a few seconds of this, she goes, babe, you look good, okay? Is that what you wanted to hear, right? The audacity, right? Like who does she think she is telling me exactly what I wanted to hear? But there wasn't anything wrong in the way she said or what she said. What offended my heart was that I was exposed, that it became pretty obvious how desperate I was to be seen and recognized. And so John 17, we see Jesus' words tonight will be a challenge to us because instead of Jesus telling you and maybe comforting you and be like, no, 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 it's okay. Keep some glory for yourself. You've worked for it. You deserve a little something, something. He's gonna say, no, all the glory you have, give it on to God. So how do we as disciples of Jesus give God all the glory when we desperately hunger for it? We'll open back our text up to John chapter 17. And what we see before us is a front row seat to a divine conversation between God, the son and God, the father. And it's focused on, guess what? The topic of glory. And now I want us to pay close attention to this chapter because this is one of the few recorded prayers of Jesus in all of scripture. And it happens also to be the longest recorded prayer. And so notice how Jesus begins this prayer to the father. He says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, in verse one, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son that, he, that the son may glorify you. What an interesting way to to start this interaction because out of anyone, there is only one person who is owed the glory, right? Jesus. I mean, he's the king of the cosmos. He's God's divine warrior. He's the Messiah. He's the healer. He's the alpha, he's the omega. And yet Jesus here does not glorify himself. What we find in all the gospels is that Jesus quickly seeks to not find his own glory, but only seeks to give the father glory. So he looks to his disciples and says, listen, I know you're tempted and desiring glory, but I want you to seek a different path. To Jesus deserving all the glory, all the honor, he says to his disciples, listen, all the glory that you may have on this planet on earth, give it to the father. Do not glorify yourself, but glorify the father. And this is all that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. The whole purpose of Jesus' ministry was to point people to the Father. Every miracle he did, for the glory of the Father. Every teaching he did, for the glory of the Father. Every thought, word, and deed, only for the glory of the Father alone. And the reason why Jesus was able to orient his life in such a way where he would dispose of his glory and give it to the Father is because Jesus understood the purpose of glory. Why is anyone glorified? Well, the only, one for, the only way for us to understand it is if we understand how the biblical authors use the word glory. So there's gonna be two new words you're gonna to learn tonight. Maybe, maybe not. This will be right before, behind me. There's two words. The top word is the Greek word for glory, which is doxa. Can you say that, doxa? doxa. Cool. And the Hebrew word for glory is kavod. Can you say that? Oh. Kavod, perfect. Now the Greek word for glory is used very uniquely in the New Testament. It's not used in this way in any other Greek writing. And the reason for this is because the, the meaning for glory, for doxa, borrows its meaning from the Hebrew, Hebrew word for glory, which is kavod. Now kavod originally in the, in the Old Testament just meant heavy. So the rock is heavy, a giant is heavy, this animal is kavod. And if something is very heavy, you would just say it's kavod kavod, nothing original, just very heavy. But over time, Kavod meant more than just a unit of measurement. It became about reputation, especially in relation to the king of Israel. So instead of Kavod simply measuring the literal weight of an object, what Kavod was used was to measure the reputation of the king. So the Kavod or the glory of the king of Israel was based purely on how people saw his kingdom. Interesting. Because when we think about getting glory, we think I got to work for it. People have to see me in a certain way. That's my glory. But the way that the biblical authors used it was how people perceived them through others. And so the king's kingdom was not his own efforts. The king's kingdom, his glory, sorry. The king's glory was not himself. The king's glory was his kingdom. So if people were happy, it would mean that the king was good. If the people were fed, it meant the king provided. If there was peace in the kingdom, it meant the king protected his peace. The lives of the people in the kingdom of Israel either added or detracted from the glory of the king. So how the people lived said everything about what they thought about their king and what others should think about their king. I know it seems a little bit roundabout. I'll, get, I'll, I'll, I'll simplify it here the way that the New Testament authors used the word glory was centered not around the King of Israel, but the King of all creation, who is God. And so Jesus in his humanity understood exactly who he reflected. He says this in John fourteen nine: he says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. And then the author of Hebrews says this with complete Confidence and clarity when he says this in Hebrews 1, chapter one, verse three, he says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, meaning he is the full reflection of God because he is the exact imprint of God. So when you look at Jesus, you can't help but see the father exactly as he is. You see him accurately. So let me ask you, what do people see when they see you? What do they see in your life? Who do you reflect? Cause I know we live in a culture that has cultivated the practice of making much of ourselves, but Jesus challenges that way of life and says, listen, you were created not for self glory, but you were created for the glory of God because you bear his image. You were created to reflect him accurately. And your life can be spent either adding or detracting from the glory of God. Our lives will say everything about what we think to be true about God and how we want others to think about God. And while we are, and while we are created to reflect him accurately, we are also meant to point people to God. It's not that you just reflect him, but that we reflect for a purpose. So when people see us as disciples of Jesus, who do they see? Do they see God accurately through you? When people look at you and your life, what do they think about God? Do they want to know God more because of you or are they less interested in God because of you? When people see us, they should see God and actually want to know God because of the way we reflect him. What a condemning moment or at least a convicting one because I can't condemn anyone. because the church today in a lot of ways have given up on reflecting Jesus. In fact, I think people are turned more away from God because of Christians than they are turned to God because of us. May that never be true of this community. In fact, let's pray that it's not true of the church of Christ because Mosaic is no better than the rest. We are part of the church of Jesus that our prayer would be that all of us not only just reflect God accurately, but that people would want to know God more because of the way we live our lives. Rachel and I, for our first year anniversary, we got to, in September, go to uh, France. And in Paris, the city of lovers, love, lovers, whatever. In Paris, there's a famous museum called the Louvre. And in the Louvre, there are many beautiful art pieces. And, And one in particular, that people spend many hours waiting to go see uh, is called the Mona Lisa. It's going to be right behind me because I can get it off the internet. Pause, hold, Ah, loading. There it is. See in the early 16th century, an Italian artist named Leonardo da Vinci painted this portrait. And it is one of the most famous artworks in human history. And the reason it is so popular is because of how realistic the portrait was for da Vinci's time. He had created a a very special, uh, unique uh, painting style in which he could use the light and shadows to accurately reflect and contour the human face beautifully. And so it would be easy to say that the Mona Lisa was da Vinci's glory. People know da Vinci because of his artwork, like the Mona Lisa. Because of how beautiful his art was, people wanted to know who Da Vinci was. In contrast, here's another famous work. Unlike the Mona Lisa, this is a piece of architectural work, which you can load in now. If you don't know what this is, this is the eye for soar. okay? This is the complete opposite of the Mona Lisa, this has to be the worst architectural blunder known to mankind. So bad, in fact, that during the last hurricane, there were so many memes about people praying that this would finally be the hurricane to tear this building down. People want to know who built it, but not so they can praise them, but so they can make fun of them. And while this is comical, may I ask a more serious question? Young adults, what do you want to spend the rest of your life doing? Do you want to make much of yourself or do you want to bring as much fame and glory to God? Because as a disciple of Jesus, you can never do both. You're one or the other. And the irony is that God has made you a Mona Lisa, yet you wanna be an eye for eyesore. But which one do you want? You see, when we try to make much of ourselves, we are too distracted to make much of anything of God. Instead, we are tempted to focus more on falling in love and getting a promotion or worried about losing love and losing our job. If we try to hold any glory for ourselves, what we're really telling people is that there is something in ourselves that is better to be looked at than completely fixing their eyes on Jesus. But as Romans seven eighteen painfully reminds me, There is nothing good in us in our flesh. Meaning this, the only thing worth reflecting reflecting in us is not us, but it's the very image of God seen through us. So Mosaic and adults, may our prayer echo the words of Jesus tonight. Father, glorify me so that I would glorify you. Father, if there is any glory for me to have, may I use it completely to point it to you. But knowing that we are created to glorify God, how then do we actually go about glorifying God? Let's read on to verse four for a moment. It says this, Jesus says this to the father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. See, there was a mission that the father sent Jesus on and the way that Jesus glorified God was obediently accomplishing the work of the father that the father gave to him. The mission, if you're wondering, was the salvation of God's people, that Jesus would give eternal life to all who God the Father asked him to give it to. But our mission is a little different, because Jesus already accomplished the work of salvation on the cross, but as Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 reminds us, God has very good works for you and I to complete. What are these good works? Let's read on to verses six through nine. It says this, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and now they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have is given to me for I've given them the words that you gave me and they received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but I, for those whom you have given me, for they are your what we find here in verses six through nine is that the very first way in which we can glorify God is that we make the name of God known to everyone around us. In verse 18, we'll see a little bit later, it says that Jesus, he says this, as speaking to the Father, Father, as you have sent me, Jesus, into the world, so I, Jesus, am sending the church, us, into the world. See the creation of the church is for God's glory, but the church that refuses to go out into the world and testify to the greatness of God is one that loses the opportunity to look like its savior, Jesus. That's why Jesus prays that we would be sent just as he is sent. So Jesus was sent for the salvation of God's people. When people saw Jesus, they saw the Father, which meant they saw eternal life. That's what verse three says, right? And this is eternal life, that they know you, Father, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So when Jesus prays this, he's desiring for us to live our lives in such a way that then we reflect God, that we reflect the son and in reflecting the son, we reflect the father. And as we reflect the father, people come to faith and have eternal life. That's a big deal. I'm gonna repeat that for us, that we would live our lives in such a way that we would reflect Jesus, the savior of the world. And in, receiving, in, in reflecting Jesus, savior of the world, we reflect the father, the one who sent Jesus to save humanity so that they would have eternal life. Wouldn't it be crazy if every week we needed to open our baptismal because people kept placing their faith in Jesus week after week? that we had to open our baptismals because your family were getting saved, because your coworkers were getting saved, because the baristas at Oxum were getting saved, because the baristas at this coffee shop were getting saved, or that person or your coworker or your your classmate were getting saved because in seeing you, they see Jesus, and in seeing Jesus, see the Father, and in knowing the Father, they're like, I want eternal life, and they come to be baptized because they wanna dedicate their whole life to Jesus. Would that be crazy, or is that possible? Because if Jesus is praying for it, I think it's possible. That's right. oh, yeah. Like, I don't know about you, but I want our church to have, to have our baptismal rugs to literally never be dry because we're just having baptism happen all the time. That's right. And I know it may not be the norm in the Western church, I'll admit, but what I see here in this text is that this is the will of the son, whether or not this is common for us. That many sons and daughters will be brought to glory through the work of the church in reflecting Jesus well. And so as people come to know God, Jesus then prays this over us in verse 11 and 12. He says this, I am no longer in the world, but my people are in the world. And I am coming to you, Father. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. See, we glorify God. Secondly, first, it's in proclaiming his name. But the second is that as a community, when we join in on God's desire for us to be united, or as Jesus says, that we are kept to be one. Because the unity of the church, the unity of this community, the unity of the big capital C church, meaning Mosaic, Life Bridge, Real Life, uh, Grace Orlando, whatever uh, church you can think of, when we communally come together. Now, I just, I just want you to just for a moment to disengage your mind from thinking that Mosaic Church is the church. So for a quick moment, I just you to know that. Christ did die for those in this room, but he died for the church in which we are a part of, but we are not the fullness of it. And so when we as a community, as young adults come together in unity, that's a blessing. But what God is really getting at is that when the Mosaic church and the real life church and all these churches and whatever cool names we give them come together in glory, we bring glory to Jesus because when we are united in one God, we reflect the God upon which the church is built. And so Jesus prays that we would be united as one, just as the father and the son are one. And when we endeavor on this as a community to be united at the feet of Jesus, not giving into division, not letting the enemy have a stronghold, when we testify to a God who is united, it says that there is, a, there is, not, there is no disharmony within the Godhead, which ultimately means that God can be trusted to bring together what is broken. That is why it is so important for us to seek unity in diversity. And I know that the pursuit of unity has become a difficult topic for the church when it comes to race and sexuality, and I hear you. But we forget that that, this is what it is that actually holds the church together. It is not worship styles, liturgies, spiritual gifts, age-specific groups, clothing choices, uh, sexual preferences, uh, racial tension. None of these things are actually what holds the church together. No, Jesus says, Father, by the power of your name, the people are one. By his name, we are made one with Christ and the thing that makes us one with Christ is the gospel. What holds the church together and forevermore is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never forget the power of the gospel. And as the church seeks to walk in unity, there will be obstacles along the way. Jesus warns the disciples that the world will hate them because they belong to God and and that the evil one, Satan, will come to seek to devour them. So the question becomes, how can we glorify God in the midst of this spiritual attack? And he says this in verse 17, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's what he says. He says, See, the church is meant to be sanctified. And if you don't know what that means, all it is is it is meant to be set apart for a holy work of God. That our lives are meant to be devoted completely to serving God. Notice that what Jesus says here that sets us apart is the truth, which is the word of God. He says it's because Jesus calls the fa- Satan the Father of lies in John :844. The enemy knows what is at stake when the church is set apart for the service of God. Glory happens. God is accurately reflected and people can see the glory of God and can come to know God and be taken out of the kingdom of darkness. So the only thing that Satan can do in terms of fighting the church is bombard the people of God with lies and more lies. So the only way for us to be protected from the father of lies is to hear the, the truth from the father of light, which is Yahweh, to hear and know the words of God. And so may the church no longer be associated with false teachings and ungodly practices because God will not be mocked. God's church is to represent God and to make his name known. But without the pursuit of God's truth in our lives, the church will become distracted and ultimately ineffective. But if the people of God walk in truth, one glorious thing will happen. People will see God the one who takes the dead and makes them alive, the one who takes the people in darkness and who bring them to the glorious light. This is what happens when the people of God walk in truth. Now this list in and of itself is not exhaustive. These three things are not the only ways in which we can bring glory to God. Jesus says that we, are to be, that we are to be set apart by his word. So if, if you want to find an exhaustive list of what it means to reflect God accurately with your whole life, what you need to do is take this, it's called the Bible, and you read it, ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten you so you can see God, who he is, so you can reflect him as he is. And I don't mean that in a snark way, I mean that in a true desperate way. If we are to reflect God accurately, we need to know him accurately. But the reason that Jesus uses these three markers in particular is because a church on the mission for the glory of God is a one who is dangerous to the enemy. But these markers are also easily abandoned when difficulty comes. See, Jesus, as he finishes his prayer, do you know what happens after? He will be taken Arrested, falsely convicted, beaten, bruised, stripped, bloodied, and ultimately crucified. The disciples will be tempted upon seeing Jesus crucified to forego what they just heard. You want me to give glory to God? At what cost? Losing my life like Jesus did? No way. But you see glorifying God seems only doable when it doesn't cost us too much. But the disciples at the prospect of losing their lives would be tempted to keep their mouths closed, to not proclaim the gospel. They would be tempted to break into divisions and grow bitter and angry with one another. They would be tempted to live life for themselves again because they don't think it's worth following Jesus. But Jesus says, no, listen, don't give in to the lies of the enemy. Don't, don't go seeking glory for yourself again. Remember that I am worthy of the glory that you give me, that I'm worthy of your glory. And we might think this is callous because it's like, but, but Jesus, you're sending people to the slaughter. You're, gonna, you're just throwing them out there as if you don't care about them, but that's not true. How do I know that? Because he's praying for them. We see prayer as like, like, a, like, a, like a plan B. But for Jesus, like, I just need you to know, there has never been a prayer that Jesus has prayed that hasn't been answered. He's the God of all creation. In some ways, he's like praying to himself. If he's praying to himself, he's gonna complete it. And so what is Jesus praying for on the behalf of his people? He's praying that they would be united, that they would be kept safe, that they would be guarded, that his joy would fill them, that Satan would never be able to get to to them, that they would be set apart completely and only for Jesus. If Jesus prays for it, it's a done deal. It's a done deal. It's a done deal. So this prayer that Jesus, that we're reading tonight is meant to give confidence, not just to the disciples of the first century church, it's to give us confidence right here, right now in 2023, that we are safe to live a life completely devoted to God, even if it costs us our life. Because the world needs to see a church devoted to the act of glorifying God. In fact, the church needs to see the church, see the church devoted to the act of glorifying God because it is a testament to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. That's right. yeah, that's totally right. But I'll be honest with you. As I'm sitting on my desk writing this out, thinking that's a good one, that's a good one, that's a good one, man, they're gonna love this. They're gonna love this. I'm thinking, I don't care. Like I, like I care, like I thank you, John 17 for reminding me that I'm created for God's glory. Th- thanks that I know the history of the word glory and I learned two words and maybe I sound smarter. Thanks John 17 that I, I feel a little bit more practically equipped to glorify you. But the one question that I wrestled with as I was writing this message was this, it's not so much what I do with the glory as much as why would I ever give God all the glory? Just because he says so? Just because his reputation is on the line? The simple answer is yes to both, but it goes deeper than that. God is worth all the glory because he saved you from eternal death. I want you to reflect on this for just a moment. We give God all the glory and he's worthy of all the glory because he died for you. In John 17, 19, it says that he was consecrated, that he was set apart for a work and that work was our salvation. He was sent to this world so that we would have eternal life. He lived his life in such a way that testified to everyone who knew him that the father's mission was so good and so amazing that he would give up his life for it. In fact, Philippians chapter two, verse eight says that Jesus laid down his rights and was obedient to the father to to the point of death. And you know what's crazy that was even more crazy than that is that as Jesus hung from the cross, He did it with joy. Hebrews 12:2 says that Jesus went to the cross with joy because it would result in our salvation. Do you know anyone more selfless? Do you know anybody who would give their life for you with joy? that upon feeling every whip and every beat and every stream of blood down their body, they would with a smile say it was for them. Do you know anybody? I do, his name is Jesus. Christ's sacrifice on the cross was the father's glory, it's true. But our life is Jesus' glory because it shows the world that only Christ can bring the dead to life. Because one thing is to say, well, that's cool. Jesus is nice and he died for me. But it's a whole other thing to say, not only was he completely selfless, but that he has the power to bring the dead to life. This is why he is worthy of all glory, honor, power, and dominion. So in light of that, Mosaic young adults, let me ask you, what will you do with your life now? What will you do today? What will you do tomorrow? What will you do next week? What will you do next month? What will you do with this year? What will you do? I pray that we would devote our lives to the glory of God alone. We glorify God best when we live our lives completely devoted to him. And there will come times of distraction where we will try to revert to self glory or times when we try to go back and forth between giving God glory and ourselves glory. But here's my final invitation for you. This is what Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, it says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present to your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I'm going to invite you guys to stand. The worship team will come up. Tonight, set yourself on being set apart for the glory of God. See, biblical worship is beautiful because it's a moment where we get to literally say out loud with words and we get to say to ourselves that God is great. It's a rhythm of us seeing him rightly and seeing ourselves rightly. Would we not hinder ourselves? Would we not hesitate any longer to give God the glory? So tonight, right now, after I finish praying for us, I would hope that you would worship God with complete abandon and seek to set yourself apart for the glory of God because he is worthy. God, I thank you so much for this community. I thank you for your word, for it is true. God, I just ask that you would begin to reveal to us the places in our heart that we refuse to hand over to you. I ask that you would reveal to us the places where we have gone to seek for glory, thinking that is what satisfies our hearts. Instead, I would ask you, Father, to send your spirit to break and mold the hearts of this community to come to such a place where we would bow on our knees, that we would join with heaven hosts and declare glory, 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 that we would join with all creation. As the psalmist says, all of God's creation gives glory to the God of the universe. As the waves roar as the mountains rise, as the trees sway, as the winds blow, they're all worshiping God. So may we, as the people of God, raise together one unified voice. Would we lift our voice together united? Would we proclaim the goodness of Jesus, not just to the world, but to ourselves, not just to the world, but to this church for one another's sake, that we would come and say, God, you are worthy to be praised. Glory to your name in the highest, that every knee shall bow and every Tongue will confess that you are God. May we not wait for that moment. We can do it right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use this message you just received and direct your heart completely towards Him. If you want to hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.